We're going to turn now uh, to our scripture, and our scripture comes from Isaiah, Isaiah 58. It is a, a scripture that may be familiar. Um, it's a script, well, it's a scripture that gave us our Lenten theme last year, because the scripture comes up at the beginning of Lent every year. Um, it is God speaking to a people who have returned from exile, and the end, the conclusion of this scripture is full, chock full of overabounding, superabounding grace. The beginning of this scripture, though, to these hurting people, it would have been a challenge, and it would have been uncomfortable. So Joan and I are going to read the scripture, Isaiah 58, beginning in verse 1. Shout it aloud, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out, they seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast? A day acceptable to God? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of God shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and God will answer. You shall cry for help and God will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. God will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. We celebrate the written word of scripture. Thanks be to God. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Holy God, 
quiet our hearts and minds that we might receive and embody the blessing of your word. Amen. There is a Franciscan blessing that begins like this. May God bless you with discomfort. May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may live deeply and from the heart. Every time I hear or speak the blessing, may God bless you with discomfort, I get uncomfortable. It's an edgy blessing. May God bless you with discomfort. Who wants to be blessed with discomfort? And it doesn't stop there. This Franciscan blessing goes on and blesses us with anger at violence, injustice, and the oppression of people. It blesses us with tears to shed with those who mourn. And it then blesses us with foolishness to believe that we can make a difference in this old world. Who blesses people with discomfort and anger and tears to shed and foolishness? How could that possibly be a blessing? Over the course of Lent, as we consider blessing for the journey, we will consider each of these blessings. And today we consider the first, may God bless you with discomfort. In today's scripture, the prophet speaking in the name of Isaiah blesses the people with discomfort. This is an uncomfortable squirm in your seat kind of scripture. The people in this text are already having a hard time. This part of Isaiah was probably written after the exile. Jerusalem has been conquered, reduced to rubble. A significant number of people have been taken away into exile in Babylon, while others are left behind. And 70 years later, the exiles, their children, and their grandchildren get to return home, back to Judah. And they find that those who were left behind basically have been living in the rubble of Jerusalem. And together they have to rebuild a life, a community. They have to learn together to live after 70 years of living separate catastrophes. They are a hurting people and they have to rebuild their whole world. And one thing they do to reassert their identity is they reassert their religion. They begin to practice their religion, their ritual, their worship as their way of reestablishing their identity and their relationship with the one true God, the God of Israel. And so they fast and they humble themselves and they bow their heads like a reed and they put on sackcloth and ashes. And they expect God to be impressed, to be moved. And when they don't get the response they expect from God, they they don't get any response. They bring that to God's attention. Excuse us, God. Have we not fasted? Have we not humbled ourselves? Have you not noticed? And they get a response. The prophet, speaking as Isaiah, blesses them with discomfort. He says, you have fasted, and yes, you've put on sackcloth, but do you really think this is all that God wants? You fast, but your fasting ends in fistfights. And while you are busy at your showy fasting, the poor go hungry, the homeless have no shelter, you persist in your ways of oppression, you turn away from your own flesh and blood. This fasting that you're doing, do you really think this is what God wants? Isaiah lays it all bare. 
right there, the truth for everyone to see, the truth that no one is saying. Isaiah blesses them with discomfort at all their easy answers, their half-truths, and their superficial relationships. Isaiah offers them the blessing of discomfort. In seminary, there's a learning experience that does this too, that honors discomfort at hard truth as a part of learning. It's called Clinical Pastoral Education, or CPE. It's ministry chaplaincy training that play, takes place in actual clinical settings, not a classroom, but in a hospital or a hospice. It's learning by doing, giving real care to real people with real needs and then coming together and doing some reflection about it. In educational circles, we call it an action reflection model of teaching and learning. And the reflection part, if you're doing it right, involves some discomfort. In the CPE model, you do this learning with a supervisor and a group of peers who commit to learn together, but who also commit to sometimes confront each other with the truth. You all go out into the hospital, each to your own unit, your own floor, and you take care of folks. You are chaplain to the patients and their families and the staff giving spiritual care. And then you gather almost daily as a group, report back your experiences and welcome feedback. Sometimes uncomfortable feedback to learn from mistakes and even more broadly to become more self-aware. One of the practices and skills that CPE teaches and insists on is the discipline and the love to name honestly what is going on in the room, to speak a reality that may be unspoken, to speak a reality that may even be obvious, but that folks may be actively avoiding. It is to lay before another, to lay before ourselves true things, uncomfortable things, so that we can live deeply and from the heart. Now, I want to give you a sense of what that's like. I did my CPE work at UCSF, and they are known for being rigorous. I'm just going to say it. CPE is this combination of a job and a classroom and boot camp. I went to the interview for this summer job relatively unaware. It started off okay, and then a few minutes into it, the director asked me, so Scott, what would a difficult patient be for you? who would you have trouble working with? I wasn't expecting that question. So I thought, and I said, well, I guess a patient who was vocally anti-gay. And she took it from there. She said, okay, then I want you to imagine that you've just walked into a hospital room and the patient is yelling the worst anti-gay things you can think of at the nurse who is leaving the room. What would you do? Well, I thought, and I said something like this, well, I would talk to the patient and I would try to calm him down. I'd try to see where he's coming from, try to understand. I'd ask him why he is in the hospital, how he is feeling, try to figure out what his needs are. And the director stared me down. And she said, wow, that was avoidant. You've just managed to talk about almost everything except what is actually going on in that room. I wanted to crawl under my chair, but there was nowhere to hide. She didn't skip a beat. 
She said, now, I want you to imagine that you walk into a room where a patient's yelling racist things at a nurse as she is leaving, what would you do? And she'd read my resume, she knew I was a lawyer. I was still reeling, but I said, I would tell them that that kind of conduct is not allowed in the hospital, that in the hospital, everyone is entitled to dignity and respect, patients and nurses and doctors, and that the hospital has policies that protect everyone from being yelled at and harassed like that. She just let me sit for a moment. And then she said, Scott, you need to spend some time thinking about why you responded to those two situations differently. And then she said, Scott, you don't do the patient any favors by letting them be comfortable acting out of their own homophobia and their own racism. You are not helping anyone. You're perpetuating a system where the nurse keeps getting harmed every time she walks into that room. And you're not helping the patient advocate for the care they need because how do you think that the nurses even the best nurses will respond to someone who is acting like that. This was not the best job interview I have ever had, but I left convinced that if they would have me, I would learn with them because she blessed me with discomfort at my easy answers, my half truths, my superficial relationships, discomfort at my own avoidance. In one short hour, she read me. <laughs> she read me and she laid bare my lifelong pattern of avoiding hard things at the expense of truth and healing and deeper relationship. Discomfort is an essential part of growth and learning because it doesn't let us stay stuck. Discomfort is an embodied signal that something is not right in the world, not right in our community, in our family, in our life. Discomfort is an embodied alert that something is in need of attention and correction and care. Discomfort is or should be an essential part of our anti-racism learning here. For those of us who are white, we have learned that there are a lot of things about race and racism that we white folks just don't see. We typically don't see ourselves in terms of race. We don't see how the systems we inhabit benefit us all day long because of race. And we don't see how those systems harm people of color. We don't see because we don't have to. We can move through the world benefiting at the expense of others with our easy answers and our half-truths and our superficial relationships. And when all this is put into plain view, it is uncomfortable. Robin D'Angelo and others call it white fragility. It is uncomfortable and absolutely necessary. We have to name what is going on in the room and in the world if we are ever to be a part of its repair, if we are ever to change, if we are to ever stop hurting people, if we ever are to live deeply and from the heart. And that's also true in our families 
and in our communities, even in our life together as a church. In our families and our communities, there can be a tendency not to name what is going on in the room, particularly if we sense that it's going to make folks uncomfortable, if it might trouble the waters. Maybe it's a need that we have never voiced. Maybe it's a hurt or a grudge we have been nursing for far too long. Maybe it's a way of living that is causing harm. Maybe it's a communication that's long overdue that needs to happen. But not naming, not naming it isn't helping anyone. It's keeping us stuck. Writing about Lent, Joan Chittister says, there is a natural inertia built into the human condition that seeks the comfortable, the familiar, and the secure. Lent stirs that up. Lent takes us from one growth point to another. It may be easier to live in the false comfort of easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships, but Chittister says, to live for lesser things is to risk not really living at all. Lent gives us the opportunity to live into this blessing of discomfort. Lent is, at its essence, a journey with Jesus to the cross, a way that passes through Holy Week that rests at a table where betrayal sits and sups and that then passes through Gethsemane and a trial and a cross. It is a way full of discomfort. This year, we're thinking of this Lenten journey as a way of blessing. To bless is to infuse the world with good. The way of Jesus infuses the world with good as it blesses us with discomfort at the things that are keeping us stuck, at the things we are not doing or saying, at the things that keep harming ourselves and others. Lent invites us to see these things and to name them plain. And so I just wanna offer a few questions for our prayer today and this week, questions for you and for me. What are the easy answers that you are clinging to? What are your half-truths? Where does it feel hard and scary to move into the whole truth, the full truth? What are your superficial relationships? those relationships that may be on hold or stagnant until you choose to go deeper, your relationship with, the, with family or with friends or with the church or with the poor. In your life and in our world, what's going on in the room that's not getting set? And I also want to say this, Lent doesn't ask us these questions just so we will feel uncomfortable. The blessing of discomfort is specific. It is not just discomfort for the sake of discomfort. It is discomfort with easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships, and its purpose is so that we may live deeply and from the heart. 
the purpose of Lent is to invite us into the life of Christ to travel the hard but true path that leads through the cross towards resurrection so that we may live deeply and from the heart. And that's what the prophet who speaks for Isaiah says to the people. He lays their stuff bare. You fast, but while you fast, you quarrel and you oppress and the hungry go without food. Is this what you think God wants for you? No. No. God wants so much more for you. This is what God wants. That you loose the bonds of injustice so that all may be free. That you share your bread with the hungry so that everyone has enough. That you stop hiding yourselves from your own kin so that your relationships will go deep. And then, and then the prophet says, if you remove the yoke from among you, if you offer the food to the hungry, if you satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall arise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday sun. God will guide you continually and will satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong, then you will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Then, then you will know what it is to live deeply and from the heart. In this season of Lent, may God bless us with discomfort at easy answers half-truths, and superficial relationships so that we might live deeply and from the heart.